scripture lesson this morning is Genesis chapter 39. And I want to draw to your attention to a, a translation and structure of the text on page 20 of the liturgy. Uh, the translation is largely based on the ESV, but with some other slight uh, changes to bring out some of the, the textual nuances that are here and to bring out what is more in the Hebrew text than what is so much sometimes lost in our English translations. Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, a man of Egypt, had bought him from the hand of the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Yahweh was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that Yahweh was with him, and that Yahweh caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put in his hand all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of Yahweh was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the bread he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put all that he has in my hand. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her house and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew man to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came to the house. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison house, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison house. But Yahweh was with Joseph and showed him covenant love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison house. And the keeper of the prison house put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison house. All that was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison house paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's hand because Yahweh was with him. And all that he did, Yahweh made it succeed. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. 
Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Joseph Joseph, and for Genesis 39 that is before us this day. We pray for power and strength to understand your word, that you would direct us in the truth, that we might see Christ clearly and follow him more fully and faithfully. Grant us this help, we humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the 90s cartoon, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, when Adam would turn into He-Man, there was a sequence in which he would take the sword of power and go through the transformation, declaring, I have the power. And then after turning into He-Man, he would zap his large cat, Cringer, turning him into Battle Cat, and off they'd go to meet a threat posed by Skeletor and his minions, or rescue a friend, or what have you. Or in the 1990s hit rap song, The Power, by the music group Snap, the first line declares, I've got the power. And while you may not recognize the song by its title or the name of the group, you've likely heard part of it played in a movie, TV show, or commercial at some point. Well, the issue of power and who has the power is central to our text this morning in Genesis 39. It's a key aspect of the theology of the text. Who has the power? Who is in charge? And the way the text is written provides us some colorful and clear insights into answering those questions. This isn't an overly complicated passage. The the meaning is fairly straightforward, especially when we take into consideration the language and repetition of language that's used. And when we do that, lo and behold, the theology of the text is revealed to us. The word hand is used some nine times. What does the hand symbolize in Scripture? Power. Five fingers. You hold things with your hand. You have control over what you hold. Uh, Even the children's song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hand, is simply declaring that God is in control. Garment is a general term for clothing. There's apparently nothing remarkable about Joseph's garments, but often they symbolize office or authority. So we'll see what's going on with garments when we get to the center of the story. Yahweh, God's covenant name, is used eight times in this chapter. And maybe you think, well, so what? What's the big deal about that? Well, the name Yahweh is only used three other times in all of Genesis 37 to 50. So there's a high concentration of use here that we shouldn't ignore. The word master is also used uh, some eight times. Perhaps the writer is subtly asking the question, who is the real master in the text, Potiphar or Yahweh? The word all is used some nine times, conveying the totality of what Joseph receives at various points and foreshadows all that will be given to Joseph at the end of chapter 41. And of course, this points forward to Jesus when all things are given into his hands. There's an overall structure provided on page 20 of the liturgy. You can see the various sections that thematically correspond to one another with verses 12 and 13 at the center point, particularly verse 12. And hopefully setting these themes at the outset primes the the pump of your minds a bit. And perhaps you'll even be able to anticipate the main points that the writer wants to impress upon his readers and even what the Holy Spirit would have us to understand as God's people today. So where does this morning's story begin? Well, it picks up right where chapter 37 left off, reminding us of Joseph's having been brought down into Egypt and bought by Potiphar. Who is Potiphar? Well, an official of some kind in Pharaoh's court. He may have been the captain of the guard. He may have been the head executioner. 
Uh, the word used there isn't entirely certain. But notice how else Potiphar is described. A man of Egypt. He's a Gentile. Joseph has gone to the Gentiles. And he's gotten there by the way of the Ishmaelites. Descendants of Abraham's first son through Hagar. But also notice the language. From the hand of the Ishmaelites. What does that mean? That Joseph was under the power of, of the Ishmaelites. Under their authority. And now he's come under Potiphar's. There's a, a transfer of power. Then in verse 2 we're given an important theological clue. And foundational perspective. By which we are to read the entire account. Yahweh was with Joseph. As mentioned just a couple of moments ago, the use of the name Yahweh has covenantal significance. The God of promise, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is with Joseph. He's taking his place alongside of them as the one through whom the seed line will continue. Joseph is the one used to save his father's, his father and brothers, his family. And verse 2 also gives us another interesting piece of information. It specifically says that Joseph was in the house of his Egyptian master. He was a house slave, not a field slave. Apparently Potiphar recognized that Joseph could read and write perhaps, that he was able to keep the books. And given the fact, uh, fact that Joseph served his father in a position of leadership in relation to his brothers in the flocks, then it isn't hard to imagine him having competency when working for Potiphar. Then verse 3, Potiphar saw... Remember in Scripture, seeing equals judgment. That that Yahweh was with Joseph. And don't read by that too quickly. The implication seems to be that Potiphar knew something about Yahweh. The writer doesn't tell us that Potiphar saw that Joseph's God prospered him, but that Yahweh did. How did Potiphar know about Yahweh? Well, the obvious answer is because Joseph told Potiphar about Yahweh. He witnessed to him. He evangelized. It could very well be that we're to understand that Potiphar has been converted, that he's a believer. Potiphar and Joseph would very likely have had daily interaction. They would have talked. Potiphar would have asked Joseph about his family and so forth. And Joseph would have had plenty of opportunities to share his faith with Potiphar. So what happens next as a result of Joseph's prosperity? He's made second in command in the house. He's promoted to a position of oversight over the entire household. Joseph was in charge of the other servants, the matters of the house, and the field. Whether or not Joseph's duties would have extended to any interaction with the Egyptian royal court that Potiphar was a part of can't be known for sure, but Joseph is held in very high regard. Potiphar put everything in Joseph's hand, gave him control over everything. And this anticipates Joseph later receiving the same position over all of Egypt under Pharaoh. Then once Joseph's promoted over the house and all that Potiphar had, what do we read next in verse 5? Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of Yahweh was on all that he had in house and field. Two times the blessing of Yahweh on Potiphar is mentioned because of Joseph. The Gentile is blessed on account of the presence of God's chosen servant, the one who loves the covenant. And what's another time in Genesis when Yahweh prospered someone on account of the faithfulness of his promised servant? Well, Laban and Jacob. Laban's flocks prospered because of Jacob. Like father, like son here. Joseph's own experience mirrors Jacob's. 
Jacob left family and home and went into exile and served under his tyrannical uncle. Joseph was forced to leave family and home and serves under a master. Perhaps we can even make the argument that Potiphar is a better master than Laban was. But not only should we be reminded of Jacob's experience, but also bring to mind the promises God made to Abraham that the Gentiles would be blessed because of Abraham's seed. Note the detail again. The Egyptian's house. All the families of the earth are being blessed by the seed of Abraham, as represented in Joseph. In verse 6, we read that Potiphar completely trusted Joseph. He left all that he had in Joseph's hand, in Joseph's control, and didn't have to worry about a thing except the bread that he ate. It's possible that bread is a euphemism for, uh, euphemism for marital relations. In verse 9, Joseph declares that Potiphar gave him everything except his wife. And in Proverbs 30:20, an association is made between sexual relations and the eating of food. So that's part of the, of the reasoning behind this interpretation. Or it could be that Potiphar's only concern was his stomach, what he ate, perhaps hinting at an Esau association, a man whose only worry was his belly. Maybe, but the, the primary point is Joseph's thorough control over Potiphar's house. And, and it, that isn't lost with, with either reading. And as we see, this fact isn't lost on Potiphar's wife. Now, as we, we come into this section, we, we need to be all the more ready with what we might call our Genesis radar or our, put on our Genesis glasses, looking and listening for themes established throughout this first book of the Bible. And you may be, be, even be able to guess at what some of them will be. In the latter part of verse 6, which goes with this next section, we're told that Joseph was a hunk. He was not only good-looking, but was in great shape. He was uh, beautiful in form and appearance. The phrase appeared uh, before has appeared before back in chapter 29 and verse 17 in the description that's given of Rachel. So it seems that Joseph got Rachel's good genes in this respect. Then after a while, his master's wife casts her eyes on Joseph. Potiphar's wife remains anonymous throughout and is only referred to in reference to Potiphar. But also notice the mention of her eyes. She sees something. She sees Joseph. She makes a judgment. She sees that he's pleasing to the eye, that he's a delight to the eyes, which should remind us of Eve in the garden and the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what's interesting is the interplay and inversion of some of these themes here. While Potiphar's wife sees Joseph and is like Eve, not only is Joseph forbidden fruit to her, but she's also forbidden fruit to Joseph. Furthermore, she's also the serpent in the story, as we'll go on to see. And while our initial and natural reading of the text is that Potiphar's wife finds Joseph attractive and wants him to sleep with her, the sexual implications of her words and actions are secondary. You see, it isn't just that Potiphar's wife wants Joseph in bed, but that she's making a play for more power. That's chiefly what's going on here. We can know this initially because of how she speaks to Joseph. She says, lie with me. That, that's a command. She's ordering Joseph as a slave. And as a rich woman, a woman of means, and the wife of an important figure in Pharaoh's court, she's probably used to getting what she wants. She's aristocracy. Well, Joseph's response is recorded for us in verses 8 and 9. It's the only time he speaks in the narrative, and he basically sets forth three reasons that he will not do what she says. First, he doesn't want to betray Potiphar's trust. 
That's his argument in verse 8. My master trusts me and has put everything in my care. He doesn't have to concern himself with a thing. Second, Potiphar made it clear that Joseph was not responsible for his wife. She was not under his care. Joseph is second only to Potiphar himself, and she was the only thing he kept back from Joseph. Third, Joseph declares that it would be a great wickedness and sin against God. Joseph is living by faith. He knows that she's forbidden fruit, according to God's standards. And he proves to be a faithful Adam, wherein the first Adam failed in listening to his wife and taking the fruit. Furthermore, wherein the Sethites failed in marrying the pagan girls in Genesis 6, a sin against the Holy Spirit, Joseph is faithful in withstanding Potiphar's wife. And Joseph is facing a real temptation here, but not just a sexual one. See, this is an opportunity to possibly gain more power. If he provides favors for Potiphar's wife, she can provide him with other advantages as well. Joseph is being faced with a shortcut, a less difficult road to travel to advance his station in life. He's being offered the opportunity to abuse his power and authority if he'll just take the easy way and turn stones into bread. And verse 10 tells us that this wasn't just a one-time occurrence, but a proposition that Joseph faced day after day after day. And we shouldn't minimize what a difficult circumstance Joseph is faced with. It wasn't like he could ask Potiphar for a job transfer. There's nowhere else to go. He's pretty much stuck. But the end of verse 10 also seems to indicate that he not only refused to lie beside her, but also to be alone with her. She wants Joseph beside her, which has a bit more meaning than we might think at first glance, which we'll address momentarily, but he, he consistently refuses. Well, one day, as we come to read about in verse 11, none of the other men are in the house, and Joseph is going about his usual duties. And in verse 12, she catches Joseph by his garment and commands again, lie with me. Well, what do we see here? Well, a seizing of something that's forbidden. But note again that the matter is presented in terms of power, not love. It's not like she's really trying to seduce Joseph. What does she have in her hand? Joseph's garment. What do garments symbolize in Scripture? Office and authority. She's grasping after Joseph's authority. Furthermore, the implication also seems to be that she's not trying to get Joseph naked so much as she wants his garment to be spread over her. She's drawn to the guy with the power in the household, and she wants his garment over her, which would be pictured in his lying beside her and with her. Recall the imagery in exchange in Ruth 3, when Ruth goes to Boaz at the threshing floor. When Boaz discovers Ruth lying at his feet, she says, spread your wings over your servant. What wings does Ruth mean? Well, the wings of his garment symbolizing that she'd come under his power and authority and protection. So Potiphar's wife has Joseph's garment in hand. And what does Joseph do? Well, he leaves it behind. He forsakes his authority and dominion for the sake of righteousness and faithfulness. I heard a story once of a mechanic at a car dealership who had been told by his bosses to drive up repair costs by telling customers that more things needed to be fixed on their cars than what actually needed to be repaired. This man was a Christian and refused to do so, and it, it cost him further advancement and therefore income at this job. Sometimes doing what God requires of you is costly, and immediately so. So Joseph gives up what's in his hand as her hand proves to be stronger for now. 
in order to remain faithful to Yahweh, his God. So Joseph makes use of two good feet in the king's highway and gets out of there and flees outside. So the serpent has attacked the seed of the woman again, and this time it's a woman doing the attacking. You see, even if she wants to come under Joseph's power in some sense, she would also have power over him as a result of his indiscretion. She would have something on Joseph to use against him in relation to Potiphar. Well, in verses 13 to 15, we read about the initial aftermath and the steps the wife of Potiphar takes. Notice, first of all, the wife of Potiphar saw that Joseph had left his garment in her hand and fled outside. The end of verse 15 is nearly identical except that she claims that Joseph removed the garment himself. Then in verse 14, she called to the men of her house. And this could indicate that she had a house of her own in some form or fashion, that she had her own men, her own servants. She was a woman of means and had a measure of clout and was important in her own right. Or perhaps it's the writer's subtle way of saying now she's the one in charge of the house. It's not Potiphar's house anymore, but it's hers. So she starts to give her version of the account, but note what she says first. She accuses Potiphar and puts him in a bad light. See, he has brought among us a Hebrew man to laugh at us. And that's how the serpent operates. That's how Pharaoh and Abimelech replied to Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 12 and 26, respectively. This is your fault. Even more, here's a case of a woman using deception unrighteously. Also notice that she says, the Hebrew man. This contrasts with her husband, who was the man of Egypt, earlier in the story. But she says that Joseph came to Isaac at them. The word translated laugh is the word Isaac. It's the same word used in Genesis 26.8, when Abimelech saw Isaac, Isaacing with Rebekah, his wife, and then knew that Rebekah was Isaac's wife. The word seems to have a range of meanings, from laughter to mockery to sexual play. Potiphar's wife may also be playing off the resentment that might have existed for Joseph from the other men of the house due to his meteoric rise in authority in the house. So she gives her version of the story and, of course, portrays herself as the victim. But then notice the interesting detail supplied in verse 16. She set his garment by her until his master came home. She wanted Joseph beside her, but she settles for his garment, and then she waits for his master He comes home, and what does she do first? She relates the same story and accuses Potiphar. She blames him for what happened. This is what your slave did to me. She calls Joseph the Hebrew servant. And the word for servant in Hebrew is Eber, which is essentially identical to the Hebrew word for Hebrew. So Joseph is the Eber Eber. Clearly, Joseph is being falsely accused. He's being attacked. She's claiming Joseph took off his garments and left them beside her. He made a play for power to become her husband for all intents and purposes, trying to seize authority from his master. So how does Joseph's master react upon hearing the words of his wife? Well, he gets mad. He gets angry. And the natural reading of the text is that he believes his wife's testimony. He's mad at Joseph, and that's a legitimate interpretation. After all, here's the proof of the garment, though it's false evidence against Joseph. Not so unlike the false evidence of the bloody tunic presented to Jacob in chapter 37. However, it also stands to reason that Potiphar is mad because of his wife's words of accusation against him and against Joseph. 
Potiphar knows what kind of man Joseph is and is probably aware of what his wife is like too. But what other recourse does Potiphar have? What can he do? For all intents and purposes, Potiphar's wife now has the most power. She's calling the shots. She's basically able to do what she wants with both Joseph and her husband. In verse 19, the text more literally reads that Potiphar's nose burned, so he was really mad. Um, He was like the bull in the cartoons whose nostrils are flaring and flaming red with anger. Uh, We could even say that as Potiphar's wife had the hots for Joseph, that she was burning for him, so now her husband is burning with anger. But again, what, what can Potiphar do? Joseph the slave will have to be the one to suffer. Like his father Jacob, he will have to be the suffering servant. So we read in verse 20, And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison house, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison house. Now the words of translated prison house are more literally roundhouse, but no one's quite sure what that means. Um, maybe the house was round, but I just want to draw your attention to the fact that the word is, is house that's used here. And not just the word prison, as the English versions render it. So Joseph goes from Potiphar's house to the prison house. But it's where the king's prisoners were confined. And for all intents and purposes, was probably like a country club of prisons. You You don't get the sense, you don't get the sense that Joseph was in a prison cell or wearing chains. Now, yes, he's in this prison house and is more confined than he was. But they didn't sit around all day doing nothing. He's in the palace prison, not in a pit with common criminals. You can make a pretty good case that Potiphar is protecting Joseph. It stands to reason that if Potiphar believed his wife 100%, then Joseph would have almost certainly been executed. But he must do something with Joseph to appease his wife, so this is the best option available to him. But guess what? Potiphar was in charge of the prison. See, if we cheat and and look ahead, that's what chapter 40 and verse 3 tells us. And since Potiphar is in charge, then we're not surprised to read that Potiphar's assistant, the keeper of the prison, takes notice of Joseph. Verse 21 brings us back to the theology of the text that we heard at the outset. And this is a repetition of a theme, isn't it? Yahweh was with Joseph and showed him covenant love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison house. Covenant love, steadfast love is the word hesed, similar to the word for grace or favor. It's what Yahweh promises to show to his people. Yahweh, the God of the covenant, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is displaying his love for Joseph, his faithfulness to Joseph, because Joseph is being faithful to him. And that favor results in Joseph's rising to prominence again. He's put in charge of all the prisoners, and all that was done, Joseph did it. And just like Potiphar, who had... Who only had to worry about bread, so the keeper of the prison house didn't have to pay attention to anything that was in Joseph's hand. And why? Because Yahweh was with him. Yet again, Joseph shows himself to be completely trustworthy. And whatever he sets his hands to do, it succeeded because Yahweh prospered him. Yahweh is with Joseph not only in prosperity, but also in adversity. And you never read of Joseph complaining. Certainly he had opportunity to do so, and we probably wouldn't blame him if he did. Clearly his obedience to God brought further difficulty and pain. But Joseph is a man of faith. Even this death that Joseph is enduring, still Yahweh has not forsaken him. 
God remains faithful. And Joseph continues to cling to God. Joseph continues steadfastly on with, on with the next, next set of circumstances placed before him and starts anew in taking dominion of the situation. And certainly this would have been instructive for Israel and her calling in the world, especially as a light to the nations. So we see the kind of life we're called to live as well. First, Joseph, the man of faith, was a man of integrity and faithfulness. And integrity and faithfulness are primarily measured when no one is looking, when no one but God can see what you're doing. You know, after all that Joseph had been through, who would have blamed him for cutting corners, for going ahead and seizing some power and pleasure and sleeping with Potiphar's wife? But Joseph was controlled by God's word, by what God said, and not by the culture or circumstances prevailing upon him. And while it is always true that God's people should be men, women, and children of integrity, it's also vitally important for us to lean into that during times of adversity. Joseph does that, doesn't he? Both in Potiphar's house and in the prison house. And certainly that's an, an example for all of us to follow. And if we're right about Joseph, that he's perhaps 17 years old or so, then let me particularly pose the challenge to those of you who are around that same age. Is faithfulness to God and His commands, is this kind of biblical integrity important to you? And do you see it as key to the Lord prospering you? Or do you think that shortcuts really are the way to get ahead? The biblical pattern is clear. And the challenge to our faith is quite real. But the, the challenge comes to us all. Do, does your life reflect such integrity and faithfulness? When it's just you and no one else, what do your actions reveal? When the opportunity to sin is presented and no one else will know, what do you do? Of course, the Lord will know and you aren't really getting away with anything. But so many moments of our lives are measured when no one else is present and your obedience or disobedience is on display only for you and the Lord to see. Second, another feature that stands out about Joseph's faith that's related, that's related is trustworthiness. Now, Potiphar and the, the keeper of the prison house had every confidence that Joseph would faithfully fulfill his duties, that he would do what he was told. Can the same be said of you? Can you be counted on to do as you've said? Are you, are you worthy to be trusted? And children especially, do you show yourselves trustworthy to your parents doing what you're asked to do? Do you do it the right way? Can your parents rely on you to do what you're told? Trust is very important in any relationship. And if you can't be counted on, if you can't be trusted, then there's a significant hindrance and the relationship will suffer. And yet again, given the current climate of our society... How much more important is it for us, for the church, to be trustworthy? And to, to be the, the most trustworthy employees and that your, your boss knows you're going to do what you've said you're going to do. See, our lives should be marked by a certain antithesis to the culture. Combating the spirit of the age, which promotes an anything-goes mentality in order to get ahead. The ends justifies the means and so forth. Third, once again, we see that dominion, that our calling as those who belong to Christ is one of faithful service under authority. More often than not, we don't like authority. We buck against it, try to get out from under it. 
And in such moments, there might be a tendency toward laziness or slacking off what is required of us as a way of rebelling. But let's guard ourselves against such tendencies. You know, again, be, be a good employee, even if you don't love your job. You know, I'm sure Joseph would have much rather been serving as Jacob's right-hand man over the flocks, but that's not what Yahweh brought to pass for him. Now, he took dominion as a slave in an Egyptian house and then again in an Egyptian prison. We need to understand, as one pastor puts it, that we take dominion of the culture not through political wranglings, but through service. We don't have to sell the church to this culture. We have to serve the culture as the church. God will be with us and make us fruitful. We also need to remember the importance of of the righteous in society and that the Lord will bless the society when His people are faithful and pursuing their calling of service to the world. Of course, that service has a myriad of manifestations. But we are to be salt and light. We are to have a leavening effect and speaking into the culture regarding reality and truth as taught in God's Word. The righteousness that exalts a nation, which fundamentally begins with a church that pursues righteousness. Then finally, consider that the Lord Jesus is leading you, that He is with you in prosperity and adversity. Fanny Crosby, a prolific uh, poet, hymn writer, and woman of remarkable faith penned, All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt His tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in Him to dwell. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. When Fanny Crosby was six weeks old, a slight cold caused an inflammation in her eyes. The family physician was called, but he was not at home. Someone else came in his place. The stranger recommended the use of hot poultices, which tragically resulted in the loss of her sight. As the sad event became known throughout her neighborhood, the man left town and no one ever heard from him again. Concerning this tragedy, Miss Crosby wrote, In more than 85 years, I have not for a moment felt a spark of resentment against him, for I have always believed from my youth up that the good Lord, in his infinite mercy, by this means consecrated me to the work that I am still permitted to do. When I remember how I have been blessed, how can I repine? And then if we adapt the last two verses of her hymn, consider all the way your Savior leads you, cheers each winding path you tread, gives you grace for every trial, feeds you with the living bread. Though your weary steps may falter and your soul a thirst may be, gushing from the rock before you, lo, a spring of joy you see. All the way your Savior leads you. Oh, the fullness of His love. Perfect rest to you is promised in your Father's house above. When your spirit clothed immortal wings its flight to realms of day, this your song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. So with, with this truth, with this Joseph-like, Joseph-like faith set before you, go and give yourselves to the service to which you've been called. Go and give yourselves to faithful lives, controlled by God's Word, resting in the promises of God and in the God who made those promises. Go and serve Jesus your Master in whatever station He places you and trust that He is with you there. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the story of Joseph, for the faith of Joseph, and for the God of Joseph presented to us this day. 
Indeed, may you strengthen our faith. May we pursue all the more our calling in the Lord Jesus Christ, resting and trusting in Him, in the Spirit you have given, and believing your word. Indeed, Father, increase our faith, strengthen it and mature it, and may we bear fruit to your glory in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.